you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Well, we are now going to shift gears uh, and get into God's Word today. As I said, we're landing the plane on our January series, Pray. And I hope that you have found that, uh, you know, what, what it says on the can, we've, we've done in January, that we have been talking about what it means to be people of prayer. Uh, as today is the final Sunday in January, not only is it the final Sunday of our series, it's also uh, the final Sunday before school goes back. So the final Sunday uh, that we're going to have the kids for a little while in with us. Kids, it's been great to have you in our service for a final challenge in January. I've got a special treat. And that is that if any kids, and really anyone under the age of 35, can tell me the big idea of the sermon after the sermon, then there is a Freddo in store for you kids. Patty, you might be a little bit too old, but everybody else, uh, there is a Freddo in store. So kids, tell me in one sentence what this sermon is about after the service. So everybody else knows what the sermon's about. Uh, today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So if you have your, your Bibles, your phones or just your eyes can look to the screen. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 2. Over the last month, we've heard some radical things. We have heard that Jesus right now is praying for you. It's crazy. We've heard that in Jesus, we as his people actually get an invitation to meet with God the Father in prayer. Incredible. Last week, we heard that that we can actually be turned outward from our inwardly turned hearts to not just be consumed with our own circumstances or prayer for ourselves, but as we pray for others, we can have an eternal or or contribute to an eternal difference being made in the lives of others as we pray for them. Today, as we look at this little episode in 1 Samuel and a godly woman named Hannah, I want you to see that prayer is a gift to you. Prayer is a gift that God has given his people, a means of grace to shape you around the most important realities in the world. And so because of that, we participate in prayer for our good and we ignore prayer to our peril. I'm going to pray. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you in your word. And we thank you that your word is good It is living and active, and it is helpful for our instruction and our growth in you. And so, Lord, we pray that you might open our eyes and open our hearts to know your truth and to be shaped by it, to grow up in you. Lord, we pray that we might truly pray, that we might commune with you in fresh and profound ways. And so toward that end, Lord, help us see Jesus today and help us be changed into his likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before we get to the text today, uh, let me um, start with uh, something that this text really pointed me to or reminded me of. Uh, It is the final Sunday in January, which does mean it is the final day of the Australian Open, which we Melburnians love to get around. Personally, for me, as Roger Federer winds down his tennis career, I also wind down my interest in (laughs) tennis Uh, And so I really just go for whoever is losing at the time, because I love a good 
underdog. And we Aussies, we do love a good underdog, don't we? It is a very Aussie trait to get behind the underdog. And that kind of thought uh, reminded me of my most favourite underdog story involving the Australian Stephen Bradbury. You might remember uh, this guy. Some of you will be too young to remember, and so this is an incredible story for you. Uh, But Stephen Bradbury was an Australian ice skater, uh, and he was kind of like, if you, this might be too old for you as well, but in the movie Cool Runnings, you know, there's the Jamaican bobsled team. What is a Jamaican bobsled team doing going to the winter? What is an Australian ice skater doing going to the Winter Olympics? Well, Stephen Bradbury had a, had a horrid run in his career. In 1994, another skater's skate sliced open his quad, and he was almost bleeding to death until he had 111 stitches and was able to revive his career. Six years after that, Stephen Bradbury, he broke his neck, and he was confined to one of those halo neck braces where you got to like move your whole body around. His career seemingly was over, and yet again, he came back against all odds and revived his career. Then it all came to a head in 2002, the Winter Olympics of 2002, because Stephen Bradbury, he's an Australian ice skater. He's just, he's just there to, to make up the numbers. What's he doing at the Winter Olympics? And sure enough, uh, everything went as expected. In his quarterfinal, he finished third, and only the top two go through. So it's all over for him. He's, he's packing his bags home. Uh, I'm sure he, he was already mentally preparing for having to fly back home. The, the, the what-if had now turned into a disappointment until it was discovered that, that someone who beat him, one of those two who beat him in the quarterfinal, were disqualified after the race. And so he got a position, a place into the semifinals. And so now there's the Australian ice skater, Stephen Bradbury, in the semifinals of the Winter Olympics ice skating, the sprints around the rink. And so he's got no business being in this semifinal. And sure enough, again, the race goes to plan. He's, he's coming last. He's coming last until the final lap when everybody in front of him falls over. And he, momentum itself carries him through the finish line and he ends up getting into the final. This is incredible. What's this guy doing in the final? So then he's there in the final again, just making up the numbers. He's well off the pace. He's rounding the final bend. He's 15 metres behind with only 50 metres to go. That means only like two or three seconds to go. And again, inexplicably, everybody else falls over. And Stephen Bradbury goes on through (laughs) to the final. To, to the gold medal, the first ever gold medal for Australia in the Winter Olympics. Now that is an underdog story. That is an underdog story. Bradbury later told us his strategy. His strategy was just to stay out of the way. <laughs> stay out of the way and see what happened. And I bring that up because we're about to turn to this text, to this prayer or this song of a very godly woman named Hannah. And in it, we're going to see that this really is just a classic underdog story. In fact, we could, we could say that the whole story of the Scriptures, the whole story of the Bible is itself a great underdog story, the greatest reversal of fortune that could possibly be conceived. And what's true of all of the scriptures is typified here in this episode we're looking at today. And as we look at it, what we're going to do is draw out what we see through it and through Hannah's example that can challenge us for our own prayer life. And so we're going to see that we should actually find our own story 
within this story and in the content of this prayer. We're going to see that actually prayer is the practice that reminds us that, in fact, God has performed a great reversal for us. And so let's turn to it now and let's uh, first talk about how prayer is the, the window into your soul, into my soul, into our soul. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and as I go through the prayer, I'll unpack a little bit about the story that led up to it. The verse, verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 2 starts out this way. Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And now to delve into where we have come to, to get to this point let me let, let you know that Hannah is a, a woman who has been on a journey. 1 Samuel chapter 1, which we don't have time to, to read through the text, but let me summarize it for you. Hannah uh, is a, a woman who finds herself in, in a really sorry state. She is the, the favorite wife of the two wives that Alcana, uh, a, a man, is, is married to. And now uh, the, the Old Testament's kind of in story form, uh, shows us that, hey, it's not really a wise idea to have multiple spouses. And this is one of those examples because these two wives are rivals. Uh, and Hannah was the favorite. But the other wife, Penina, she was bearing children while Hannah remained barren. And in fact, the Bible says that the Lord had closed her womb and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so we meet Hannah as she is desperate, yearning, longing for a child. It's a good desire, but it's a desire that remains unfulfilled. And as a snapshot of her grief, we kind of double-click into one particular episode where she is such, got to this point of it's kind of all coming to a head, where it's, it's overwhelming, it's too much for her. She's, she's desperate, and she heads as she has made her routine to head to the, the tabernacle. And it says that she was weeping so much she, she could no longer eat. She was in this place of desperation. And as she's there by the tabernacle, she's in such distress, pouring out her soul before the Lord, tears running down her face. Her, her lips are moving, but noise isn't coming out. Sound isn't coming out of her mouth. And she looks like she's in such a state. She's such a mess that the priest there, who's looking after the tabernacle, sees Hannah praying, and, and she, he thinks that she's drunk. And so Hannah responds to him in chapter 1, verse 15. No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Now, maybe we haven't been in these particular circumstances. Oh, no, there are many in our church who have. It's, it's, it's a desperate situation. This good desire seemingly kept from us. But if we haven't perhaps shared the, the same circumstances, all of us can relate to these, these seasons of desperation. Maybe it is an, an unfulfilled longing, or maybe it is a fulfilled longing, yet now seemingly falling apart. These moments where it all gets too much, where it's overwhelming, and we can't help but, but pour out our soul before the Lord. You know, it's really only advancements in modern life that keep us from experiencing those moments more often than we, we currently do. 
I used to have a big tub of protein powder uh, at home, and on the side of the tub, uh, as the, the marketing strategy was, there was this, this massive cartoon meathead kind of guy, and then this slogan. And the slogan for the protein powder was, life's too short to be small. And I remember always looking at that and thinking, you know, that is the exact opposite of what the Bible tells us, doesn't it? Because the Bible tells us explicitly that, hey, life's too short to feel big. Life's too short to feel big. That actually, all of life reminds us of our vulnerability. We're vulnerable. And sure, technology and medicine and electricity and our prosperity, it shields us from that reality blinds us to that reality of our vulnerability. That we're in a day today where we've, we've, we've buffered ourselves from this need that Hannah's experiencing to, to pour out our soul before the Lord because most often we just, we just don't feel the need. We certainly don't feel or sense our, our vulnerability or hopelessness like Hannah feels here. And so sure, we can relate to it, but at the same time perhaps relate not so much that it doesn't so often happen to us. But it shows us, doesn't it, that there is a connection between our prayerlessness and our prosperity. There's a connection between our prayerlessness and our prosperity. Prayer and the need to, to pour out our soul, it, it exposes our vulnerability. And if there therefore is no prayer, it's likely that we're not seeing ourselves as very vulnerable. Perhaps we think we're good, we've got a plan, we know our next three steps and so we've got it together. We don't need the Lord to intervene here because we've got a plan. Perhaps our prosperity fills us with pride. There's a great quote about that, that the greatest sign of pride isn't actually the presence of boasting, but rather the absence of prayer. That if we're not praying, we're not seeing our vulnerability, perhaps we've replaced that with pride. But here, Hannah has no hope. She has no Google to turn to. She has no IVF to save up for. She has no family planning to get help and advice from. And so she prays to the God who can do all things. And I'm sure Hannah would know uh, the stories that went before her that we know of in the scriptures of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, other Women who were barren, and yet God reversed the fortune and turned that barrenness into a baby. And it turns out, to her great relief, to her great, as we turn to this prayer, celebration, she would join that long line of women that God had blessed with a baby. Because as the priest blesses Hannah after the explanation that she's here desperate, pouring out her soul before the Lord... We're told that Hannah leaves the tabernacle encouraged. And then in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called him Samuel. And then just having walked through that valley in in chapter 1, we we open up here chapter 2, and we read this verse, this prayer, this song, and Hannah is now on the mountaintop. Hannah is now worshipping, rejoicing, exulting, we're told. Because she had made a promise that, God, if you give me a son, I'm going to send him straight into the ministry. Like a symbolic devotion that, that hey, you give me that him and I'm going to give him straight back to you. And so this prayer and this, this song, 
She's singing it or, or praying it as she's saying goodbye to him, sending him off to kind of boarding school at theological college at the tabernacle. And so notice too that that also tells us about prayer, doesn't it? That, that Hannah's example tells us that, that when she was at the lowest point, desperate, she poured out her soul before the Lord. But when she was at the highest point, she poured out her soul in praise to God for what he had done. That the very boy that she had been praying for, she's now praying as she sends him away. And it tells us that Hannah's driving force in her life wasn't the child. Now, Hannah's driving force in life was her relationship with God. Because her prayer life wasn't just a life vest that she put on when she was drowning. It was also the boat that she laid back on when she was cruising. It was prayer in the bad times. It was prayer in the good times. Because it was God's there in the bad times and God's there in the good times. Hannah cared more about her and the Lord than her and her circumstances. And so she prays, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. That tells us. Our prayer life reveals to us about where our heart is at with God himself. Our prayer life reveals to us about where our life with God is at. Perhaps like the the engine light on the dashboard in your car that lights up and lets you know how it's going. Our prayer life, whether it exists, whether it's vibrant, whether it's healthy or not, is something that sits on the dashboard of our soul, telling us how healthy is our life with God. It tells us that whatever we say, however we act, whatever doctrinal statements we might pull out and say, yeah, I I, I believe this, whatever convictions we might get really passionate about and defend on social media, that it's actually in the secret place, in the private place of our prayer life with God that tells us where our heart's really at, where it tells us what we truly believe. It tells us how healthy we really are. And so how's your prayer life? How's your life with God? Do you go to him in hopelessness? Do you turn to him in praise? Do you want to come before him at all? Or have you buffered yourself so much from your vulnerability that there's really no need for a prayer life at all? Hannah's experience has taught her about who God is. And so for her, it's, it's a no-brainer to come before him. And she tells us about what she's learned about God as this prayer goes on. So we're going to turn to the rest of the prayer in verse 2 to 8. She tells us this. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. 
He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. And so Hannah tells us that there is no rock like our God. Hannah's words here tell us why God was a more pressing reality in her life than what was going on around her life, her motherhood, her position compared to her rival. She knew who she was, that she was needy, that she was vulnerable, that she, in her own self, couldn't do anything. And yet, even more so, she knew who God was. She knows God's the rock. He's strong, he's steady, he's stable. That where she is vulnerable and weak and needy, God is invincible and all-powerful and has all the resources imaginable. And what Hannah describes is exactly what she's experienced, that God most often uses his power to reverse the fortunes of the world to prove his power. God loves to flex his muscles of love and grace and goodness to the very people who have been written off, put down, and are down and out. See, one of the reasons we we pray so little, one of the reasons I pray so little, is I can be so focused on the here and now, and our perception of our vulnerability, our sense of of our need of help from the Lord is regulated or it's relativized by just comparing myself to other people. And so instead of looking up, I look across. And so we think about other people, kind of where they sit on the corporate ladder and hierarchy compared to us. And if we're doing okay, oh, maybe we're, maybe we're actually doing better than, than, than everyone else. So I'm doing all right. I got this. If we're out earning our neighbors, perhaps we don't need help because we're a quote unquote success. Maybe some of us have structured our life in such a way that we've actually filled our lives with people that are there and they're really kind of fulfilling a role for ourselves to help us look good, feel comfortable with ourselves. And we all have a tendency to think of ourselves this way. There was a 1977 study uh, that tells us that 94% of professors think they're above average compared to their peers. Another study said that uh, of drivers... This is us, those who drive. 80% of drivers think they're above average drivers. And there's other studies that tell us that that the vast majority of people think they have an above average IQ. You said the math doesn't quite work there. We can't all be above average, can we? What we see here is Hannah isn't out comparing herself to others. Hannah is so God-focused that her mind is filled with uh, the, the one who created the world, and before him, she sees herself rightly. Before him, she stands small. And we're told that that, that, that might be like a psych- psychological like, quirk for us, that we need, to, we need to fill ourselves with more self-esteem. We need to get ourselves out of that kind of thought. But in the Christian worldview, shaped by the gospel, it is a freeing thing to see, see yourself as small because you know you're connected to the one who's incredibly big. And it is a life-giving thing to acknowledge that you're a sinner if you know the one who deals graciously with sin. It is an empowering thought to 
Know and be convinced that you don't have it all together when you know the one who holds all things together. So you can, be, you can be free to actually see reality for what it is, see yourself for what it is, who you are, when we come to see God like this. The God of the Bible is a God who, we're told here, breaks the mighty and gives strength to the feeble. That he gives to the barren children. He oversees things. And the way that, that Hannah kind of writes it down or sings it out is there's a spectrum here. That God oversees all things through life to death. From the poor to the rich, those lowly to those exalted, those sitting in the gutter and those sitting on thrones, all things come under God and his sovereignty. And so when you know this God, there is nothing that need be hopeless in your life. There is no moment where things have gone too far. Hard times are just another opportunity to bring them before God and come closer to the one who wants you to be close to him. Seemingly bad news is another opportunity for God to turn what was meant for evil into good. Maybe a lack of options before us is really just the first chapter in a testimony that's going to end with us celebrating that God made a way when there was no way. So this is who God is, and therefore... This is who we're invited to come to in prayer. That you and me are invited to come before this God who is is pleased to hear it. He's the one that's doing the inviting. He wants us to come before him in prayer. He's not interrupted by our prayers. He's not bothered by our persistence or our smallness. He's not too busy for us or he's too distant from us. He's a God who actually delights to show his strength by helping people who are weak to show his competency by helping those of us who don't know what to do. A God who sides with the underdog. If only we would come before him knowing that we are that underdog. When your soul sees God like this, this is where the the desire starts to rise. We we actually want to pray to this God, want to commune with him, want want to be around him, want to be shaped by the realities of who he is and who he is for us. The challenges of your day, knowing that nothing is too impossible for God, we bring before him. The victories of our day, knowing that we didn't achieve it in our own strength, we thank him. Last week, as I was uh, driving the kids around, uh, one of them started talking about the moon, often conversation about what we're observing in life. And I was asked the question, you know, why, why does the moon go around the earth? And being the very educated person I am, I have to go to Google to find out, you know, how does that, what's the mechanics here? How does that actually work? And it turns out that it's because of the bigger, you, you, this is probably obvious to you guys, but you know, the, the, the larger mass of the Earth has a stronger gravitational pull than the gravitational pull of the Moon. And so therefore, the, the gravitational balance between them means that the Moon rotates around the Earth, even though the, the center point of that gravitational balance isn't actually the center point of the Earth, and so that's why it's a little bit, little bit skewed off. Now, when you see God as he is described in this prayer for us, just like the moon around the Earth, because he's bigger than us, because of his gravitational pull is stronger than us, all of our life starts to rotate around him. But what some of us have done is made the gravitational pull, made our lives blow up so big. We 
are seen as so big and strong and invincible. And he's the little moon. And so when that's the reality, he rotates around us. He, he needs to bend to our reality. But the reality that Hannah has described here is that God is big. And that our lives need to rotate around the reality of who he is. The rest of our life starts to revolve around him. And when that happens, prayer is just the natural byproduct of seeing God as God and we as his creatures. We need him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. He provides everything you have and has the resources for everything you need. He is the author of your life at the beginning, and in his infinite wisdom, he will be the ultimate cause of the end of your life. There is no rock like our God. Finally, Hannah's prayer finishes by pointing us to the, the clearest example of this, this great reversal of God flexing his muscle of love and grace in the world. And so let's talk about the, the point and power of our prayer as Hannah lands the plane on her own prayer. In verse 9 and 10, she says this, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And here's a little bit of a curious ending to this prayer because Hannah starts praying about this king. And yet, if you know anything about the history of Israel, to this point there has been no thought, no consideration, no conception that they could ever have a king. There is no king. And yet Hannah is bringing to mind and bringing to her prayer this thought of a king, this anointed king who's going to come and he's going to judge his adversaries. Now, of course, if you do know a bit of the story, it's, it's in a few chapters' time where Samuel himself, the baby who would grow up to be God's prophet, he anoints the very first king, King Saul. And then he, uh, while well, that's kind of happening and Saul's only just getting enthroned, he, he also goes out and anoints the shepherd boy who would be king. King David, and the kingship takes off from there. But what Hannah is essentially saying is that uh, through that, that line of kingship, there is going to be one, an anointed king, who comes with such ultimate justice, such final judgment, that he would bring the greatest reversal. And so in that way, Hannah's song here has always been connected to another song, another prayer that we know about in the Bible. Because a thousand years after this, in the first century, there was another woman who didn't have a baby. And then an angel appeared and said, hey, you're going to have a baby. And suddenly she had a baby. And she went to share the good news with her sister Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, like the priest, to Hannah, blessed Mary. And it caused Mary to sing. She said this in a song that sounds very, very similar in Luke chapter 1, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. See, Hannah had really experienced that reality, and yet Jesus now comes along, and Jesus personifies that reality. Born in a manger, and yet the king of the universe, God in the flesh. That as he grew up, his ministry was going around teaching and preaching the the great reversing power of the kingdom, that those who seek honor would find humiliation, and those who seek humility would find glory. He ends in his life when he should be kind of coronated into the city of Zion as the king, and yet he's walking in or trotting in on a humble donkey. He's the judge and the ruler of all people in the universe, and yet he himself was on the wrong side of mistrial, mistreatment, injustice. Just as he is about to take his ascent, he is ascending to a cross instead of a throne. He's crowned with a crown of thorns instead of gold and honor. And then the greatest reversal, he, he not, doesn't just go from, from life to death, but he goes from death to life. And it's because of the, the person and the work of this king, King Jesus, that God is in the business of giving gold medals to those who come last. God is in the business of giving full stomachs to those who are hungry. God is in the business of giving strength to those who know that they are weak, giving honor to those who have humility. The greatest example of that is is exactly what he's done to you and me. That you and me have been stuck and enslaved to our sin. That by nature and choice, all of us have, have run from God and we've stayed there. And like sinking sand, we're we're stuck in it. And the more we fight ourselves out of it in our own strength, the further we go down. And yet God, in his great mercy, at his own initiative, it was all conceived in his own mind, pulled us out by grace so that we who are estranged might be adopted and called his sons and daughters brought into his family. We who are unable to save ourselves might receive all the glory of salvation. God, who's in Jesus, died on the cross, has invited us to put our sin upon him, to repent, to trust in him, to receive new life. And because of that story that's happened to you and me, that if we're trusting in Jesus, he turns our sin into righteousness. He turns our distance into adoption. He turns our guilt into glory. He turns our weakness into faith. And so the final thing here we see from uh, chapter 2 in, in, in 1 Samuel from Hannah's prayer is that the point of our prayer, the point of communion with God, the point of uh, seeing who we are and seeing who God is and connecting the dots and coming to him is that we might come to Jesus, is that we might commune with Jesus. He doesn't just invite us into some isolated religious discipline or practice. No, prayer is an invitation to hang out and chat with Jesus. And when you do, when you do come to God in prayer, you leave different. You might not feel different. You might not know what's different, but don't we see it in the Scriptures? Just as as Stephen Bradbury could be a gold medalist. 
In a similar way, we, we see these fishermen, uneducated, untrained, looked down upon in their society, stand up to the religious elites of the day, boldly, powerfully proclaim the good news of Jesus. Because with Jesus, sin need not have its hold on you. With Jesus, you can get through anything with him who gives you strength. With Jesus, there is now no condemnation for sinners like me, sinners like you. With Jesus, you can be content, whatever's going on around you. With Jesus, though we still embody these, these tents of vulnerability, our bodies, we walk in a kingdom that is unshakable. And so prayer is a gift to you. Prayer is a gift that God has given each one of his children. That by partaking in it, we're reminded of how needy we are. We're reminded of how small we are. We're reminded of reality. And yet we're reminded of how big God is. We're reminded of how powerful he is for us. Again, reminded of reality. And we're invited to have our world shaped by those realities. To help us see that we need Jesus. And that Jesus has come for us. And that Jesus invites us to come to him. And so delight in that great underdog story. That God has graciously given his son for you, rescued you from wrath, and given you the opportunity in this life to walk with him and then dwell with him for all eternity. Take the gift. Be shaped by the gift. Enjoy prayer. Come before him, the lowest of lows and the highest of highs. I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to commune with Jesus himself by taking communion together. Let's pray. Gracious God, there is none holy like you, Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Let us talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from our mouths. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Lord, we praise you for Hannah, for Mary, and most of all, of course, for Jesus. We thank you that you have reversed our fortunes and given us what we don't deserve. You've invited us in when we've separated ourselves from you. You've paid our penalty even while we were still sinners, delighting in our sin. You've united us with you. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would make us a prayerful people, that you would help us see reality for what it is. Help us pray. Help us walk with you. Help us see prayer not as, as some practice to participate in, but as getting to be with you. Not as a, a quiet time or as a devotional, but as time with Jesus. Not as a prayer meeting, but as a meeting with Jesus. Help us delight in what you've done. And make us want to be with you and pour out our soul to you at all times. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.